Good to see so many family and friends here this morning. Watch out, you're making uh, Amarillo a destination. There's still many of us gone, which is what usually happens when there's a holiday. So welcome. David has been anointed by God to be Israel's king, but Saul is still occupying the office of king and trying very hard to kill David. David, after showing great mercy and respect for Saul by sparing Saul's life, when Saul was completely vulnerable, now in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, finds himself greatly insulted and rejected and made fun of by a rich fool named Nabal. David responds to this insult with instant fury, driven by his desire for personal vengeance, setting out with 400 of his men to wipe out Nabal and his whole house. Only one person seems willing and able to intervene, trying to avert David's fury, and that is Nabal's discerning and beautiful wife, Abigail. Abigail quickly intervenes by approaching David, humbling herself before him, confessing the sin that stood between her family and David, offering restitution in the form of provisions that David had asked for earlier from Nabal, plus much more, pleading forgiveness and appealing to David's sense of godliness in this whole matter. All this takes place in the first 31 verses of chapter 25. Today we want to see David's response to Abigail's intervention and what happens to Nabal and then what becomes of Abigail. For those of you visiting today, as we go through 1 Samuel, I think all of us have been literally blown away by the stories that teach so much about who God is and show us so much about how our hearts are so prone to wander. We see David's response in verses 32 through 35. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 25, verses 32 through 35. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Listen carefully to David's response here. That's what these verses are. And hear how God restrained David and how God used Abigail as his instrument to wake him up and open his heart to God's wonderful providence. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, 
who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there would not have been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Isn't it amazing, absolutely amazing, how quickly we can forget the really important points about who God is and how he works. David showed great faith in God's justice when he spared Saul in that cave in chapter 24. In other words, David demonstrated there that he understood and believed that God would be the one to deliver justice to Saul. So David was then freed up to show mercy and respect to King Saul while God allowed Saul to live and rule, even though Saul was trying to find and kill David. But now, in the very next chapter, David fails to remember that truth. It's out of his mind. It's gone. And he proceeds to feed his own desire for his own personal vengeance against Nabal. Because he did not remember the truth about God's justice, he was bent on greatly sinning by wiping out a whole family and all their servants. A great number of people. But then Abigail appears out of nowhere, except we know that she didn't appear out of nowhere. That this is God working in her to restrain David. But here she is, seemingly coming out of nowhere, as David was rushing headlong into very great sin. She brought the supplies that Nabal had asked for. But the most important things she brought were words of warning about God's justice that David needed to hear. Explaining that she hoped David would not be found guilty of shedding blood in his desire for personal vengeance. Abigail warned David that later, when God's promises to make David king were fulfilled, he would be very glad that he did not shed blood without cause and vengeance. Abigail's reasoning was biblical and therefore right on the mark. She was telling David that he must refrain from taking vengeance precisely because why? Because God would not refrain later. This is not a very popular perspective in our culture today, even among Christians, is it? It's kind of a no-no, politically incorrect. We can't talk about that. People will be offended. People won't look at the truth. 
and several other reasons. The scripture teaches that when humans are sinned against, they are not to take vengeance into their own hands, but are to leave vengeance to the Lord. Abigail may have been remembering and referring to many verses such as Deuteronomy 32:35 in which God declares, "Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay." In time their foot will slip, for their day of disaster is near, and their doom is coming quickly. You can almost inject that verse into our text as we see what happens to Nabal in the next paragraph. This is part, this quote here from Deuteronomy is part of the song of Moses, which is a song of praise for what God had done in delivering his people in the Exodus. And in it, Moses condemned not only the interference of all the pagan nations around, but the bigger problem, which was the hardened hearts of the people of Israel. In other words, people taking personal vengeance out on one another over all sorts of issues. And as you read what happened in that 40-year wilderness wandering, the Exodus, you can see over and over and over and over again people exacting their own vengeance on one another and blaming God for it all anyway. But the Old Testament and the New Testament give examples of God's retributive justice as well, which is punishment. God's right and just vengeance upon sin. Delivered sometimes in this life, before Judgment Day. Not every time, but many times. The point is, he will deliver. Achan disobeyed God, for example, in the defeat of Jericho. And his punishment was to be stoned to death along with his family, and then everything was burned, all their possessions and their bodies. Why? Well, Joshua tells us in verse 25, the first part of Joshua, chapter 7. Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And we read those passages as fast as we can to get to something that makes us feel better. But that's not the only example, is it? Many. What about Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament church in Acts chapter 5, who lied to the Holy Spirit about what they were going to do with the money that they'd given to the church, where it came from and what they were doing with it. And when Peter confront, when confronted by Peter, each of them individually then, quote, fell down at his feet and breathed their last. This was immediate divine retribution. And then we read further that the church was operating in great fear 
Fear of what? Knowing that they serve the living God. Pure eternal retribution. Hear that? Pure eternal retribution for the wicked happens for sure at the day of judgment. In Revelation 20, verse 12, one example here that's explained, we read, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Every genuine believer in Christ must recognize that God's unyielding punishment on all sin is essential to biblical faith and practice. You cannot get around that truth. Otherwise, you deny the gospel itself. Why? Well, why did Jesus have to die for the sin of those he came to save? Precisely because God judges all sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died on the cross as he took God's condemnation for our sin upon himself. That's what brings us to our knees. That's what makes us grateful. If you're not grateful, if you say God didn't love you, he's not proving it now, my life is tough, you have forgotten the big picture. You have forgotten the cross. He doesn't have to prove it. He already has proven it by sending his son to be condemned in our place. So you cannot be a Christian if you do not believe in Jesus' substitutionary atonement for your sin. If your sin was not paid for, atoned for by the only person capable of paying for it in your place, then you still carry your own sin on yourself to Judgment Day. And that is not a pretty picture. There is also much misunderstanding today about what promotes violence in society. It's a huge argument. Many argue that a belief in divine retribution... God's unyielding punishment of all sin actually promotes and encourages more and more violence. But does the Bible's testimony support this claim or deny it? Well, let's get back to David and Nabal. David recognized God's providential hand in restraining him through Abigail. Why? Because Abigail reminded David that God, sooner or later, punishes all sin. In other words, the fact that God does and would punish all sin kept David from violence upon his fellow man. Now, 
We better take a deep breath and ask some questions. Are we as much aware of the Lord's restraining us, which he is not obligated to do every time, but we recognize that it is part of his plan, if it is his plan for us? Are we as much aware of the Lord restraining us as we are of times when the Lord is prompting us to action? That's a good question. God, I think, is leading me to do this, and we march off thinking we have direct orders. But how often do we stop and realize that we were jumping headlong into something so wrong, and God stopped that from happening somehow? Often, God does that for his people. Whether we recognize it or not is another story. Because when we're bent on sinning, our ears are closed and our mind is shut off and we don't see anything that God wants us to see. We try to suppress who he is, his truth, what is clearly said in scripture, and make up all sorts of crazy rationales for doing what we want to do. Can you think of times when God's providential intervention saved you from a wrong course of action? And if so, we should insert some kneeling benches behind each row. And I think most of us would be on our knees. How does this truth about God's unyielding justice against all sin affect your own desire for vengeance against someone you feel has not treated you right? And we are all so good at that. Everybody has made us feel bad. It's their fault. And we hold grudges. That's a desire for personal vengeance because personal vengeance does not mean that you actually go out and kill somebody. It means that you're mean to somebody, that you hold back your love from somebody, that you isolate yourself, that you talk behind their back, etc., etc., etc. It hurts. Like your boss, your neighbor, your friends, your husband, your wife your child, just anybody. You have to admit that most of the most exciting movies that our culture loves, that we all love to see, have some element of personal vengeance in it, and we made heroes out of people that can exact the most. But we're all good at it. The question is, are we willing to ask ourselves are we treating each other like Christ would have us teach in the roles in which we are? Now, as we look at the next part of this chapter, we're probably surprised, if we haven't read this before, probably surprised as much as Abigail and David were to see Nabal's incredibly fast demise 
Is that a nice way to say it? Verses 36 through 39a, the first part, we read this. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. She told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things. And his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Nabal was drunk, and he was enjoying his riches. And if you read the text closely, you see that he was having this celebration at the very same time that David was blessing Abigail for helping him stay on the path that God had for him. No coincidence. The celebration is described in verse 36 as being like the feast of a king. That's pretty cut and dried, but I hope you don't miss the implication of that phrase. A celebration like a king implies all sorts, every sort, of excess and depravity. How many are ignoring, forgetting, or making fun of the truth that we all must give an account to our Creator? It is essentially the job that every person on the face of the earth has in common. To suppress the truth of God. Unless God changes your heart and you exercise your faith in taking and believing Him, embracing in Him as your Lord and Savior. Why? Because none of us, no matter what degree it is, want to be accountable to the greater power who did create us and everything in the universe. So one way to suppress that, that over these thousands of years, mankind and groups of men organized for this purpose especially are very good at ignoring and forgetting and making fun of the truth that everyone will be held accountable before God for their sin. Everyone. Only the Christian can stand before God and say, Christ's blood has covered mine. He, he took your wrath upon himself so that I could stand before you today. That's the only reason I'm here. Nobody else can say that. No other religion, no other anybody. And how many people are completely clueless to their impending demise?
And if we are, or we've seen somebody else come close, or we've been to too many funerals this last month, do we blow that information off? Because it's painful? Because you can't stand to take an account? The first time I was confronted by death, really, that tore me to shreds was my best friend who committed suicide in college after we'd grown apart a little bit after high school. His life went one way. My life kind of went the other. He had heard the gospel many times. No clue. Complete rejection. His life has been described by many of my friends from that time as he's a great guy who followed. His life could be described as wanderlust. Everybody's friend, but no purpose, no accounting. And after that funeral, which had his girlfriend there who was literally screaming through the whole service, as the officiant, the Catholic priest was trying to make some rationale for something that was really watered down in every respect. Immediately after, my buddies immediately came up and said, you want to play some tag football? You want to play some football this afternoon in the park? And I nearly threw up. That's the best example I have in my life of people completely trying to suppress what they had just witnessed. Couldn't happen to them. And because it hurt so much, because everybody loved this guy, all they could do was try to do something else so they wouldn't have to think about it. How true the day in which we live. Our time is limited. And the utter foolishness of putting off dealing with the most important issue of life denies the fact that the Lord will return the evil of our rebellion against him on our own head at some point. Except for the Christian who recognized it was unleashed upon our Savior, Jesus Christ, God's own Son. And when God delivers his justice in this life, as here we see in Nabal, it's the Lord that took him. Did you get that? This was not natural causes. The first part was some kind of stroke, something like that. But ten days later, God took him. What is that? It is a foretaste of the final judgment when all things will be judged and made right. Those times when we see this happen and we know that it's God's hand. But it also, in our life before Christ's return, serves to show the Lord as the one true God, especially as God exposes the idols of those who rebel against him. How does he do that? This is so easy to understand that it's the first thing everybody tries to suppress. The only thing a non-believer has in their life 
is this like? So when you go to a non-believer's funeral, usually it's they did this, they did this, and it's a litany because they can't talk about anything else. There is no good thing afterwards where everybody goes. They may make hint of that, but you talk about faith that has no object. They're just saying that, hoping, you know, beyond hope that we're all kind of going to be there or be annihilated and not have to feel anything anyway. It's all they've got. And for somebody who wasn't very uh, diligent during their life and didn't accomplish very much, how do you like those funerals? They're hard. There's nothing to say. Especially if there's nobody there. The idols are exposed. What were Nabal's? He was living it up. He was rich. But he was drunk out of his mind. Literally, which is why his own wife couldn't talk to him until the next day. No telling everything that's going on at that celebration where he was celebrating his richness. They just finished the shearing of the sheep. The money was coming in. He'd made an idiot out of David, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can have this picture. What was his idol? What he had. It's what he lived for. And he would defend anybody that threatened anything being taken from him. Now that one's easy to see. All of us have a lot more than just one. Subtle idols in our life. The demand for respect. To be thought highly of. That's included too. How did Jesus handle that one? The creator God took on flesh and came to the earth and man killed him. And he put up with it. Not only put up with it, he ministered. He was telling the truth. He died for folks. Remember, that like Nabal, the very essence of ungodliness is that we presume to take the place of God. And that means that we live so that we can take everything into our own hands. That is ungodliness to the hundredth degree. And when we take vengeance into our own hands, no matter what form it takes, and don't trust God and his justice, no matter when he may deliver it, then we are essentially undermining God's purposes to bring glory to himself in all things. And the real key there is that if I think I'm better than somebody and I deserve this more than they do, I'm going to be bitter when they don't treat me like I want to be treated. Instead of realizing that my sin was so great, my heart was so depraved, that I deserved God's justice. 
but since Christ took it for me, I should have my face in the dirt, thankful to him, which makes me then treat people how? Differently. Much differently. And every believer in here this morning knows that we spend most of our life learning that very simple truth. All of a sudden, the golden rule becomes a little more golden because you realize the sacrifice that Christ had to pay in order to be free to care about somebody like you want to be. How can we bring glory to the one who is worthy of it if we step into an area that is reserved for himself? We can't. This again is another way we learn humility, you see, before God and our Savior and his word. If David... Yes, this is hypothetical, but I'm going to do it anyway. If David had come across Nabal before Nabal's quick demise, but after God had used Abigail to open his eyes to see, what would he have done? His duty would then have been to extend the same peace to Nabal that he conferred upon Abigail. We don't like that. West Texans especially do not like that. Christians should glory in it. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 19-21, which will help put this in perspective, Beloved, and you can recognize that he's quoting some Old Testament scripture here. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, quote, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, quote, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head, unquote. And then Paul ends this, listen how he ends this little exhortation. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, do not be overcome by your desire to exact personal vengeance upon somebody because they did not treat you the way you think you should be treated. Let God deal with them. You overcome evil with good. One commentator writes, according to the Bible, while only God is competent to execute vengeance, we are all empowered and authorized to extend mercy. He's talking about believers. Did you catch that? It's a privilege. It's a way to show who Christ is because it's not normal in our day. It never has been normal. 
Well, what's the aftermath? That's the only way you can describe the end of this chapter. At least it's the only way I could think of. Abigail is noted in our passage for her discretion, her beauty, her wisdom, her generosity of spirit, her humility, her servanthood, and biblical devotion. And I laughed this week again, thinking that ah, we may have a whole bunch of little Abigails if people really take this passage to heart. There's no pressure. But she is the real thing, just like Hannah in the first part of this book. She's an example of that woman that's described in Proverbs 31, verses 10 and 11 and 30. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. She did not go see David just to avert the disaster of her own household. She saw, and we see in the text, that she knew who David was. The anointed king, anointed by Samuel, who would reign someday. And a huge part of her intervention was to be used by God to keep him from doing something that would keep David from fulfilling God's purpose for him. That is incredible to think about. We can't even imagine how many days such a woman must have been grieved. That, that word is not strong enough. Being in a marriage with a fool like Nabal. Day in, day out. But you've got to remember that those marriages were arranged way before they were of age, which means it probably had something to do with money. But I hate to tell you this, we live in a day when you can choose, and it isn't any better, is it? Yet, even though that's true, God intervened in his mysterious and interesting way and provided for her need. Remember, that's our definition of providence. He intervened in his mysterious and interesting way and provided for her need. As she lived in faithfulness to him and tried to save her family and husband. Again, he doesn't act this way each and every time. You can pray to that end. He may choose to to bring glory to himself. But in her case, he did. And unlike Nabal, David knew a treasure when he saw one. And Abigail was such a treasure. Abigail responds to David's proposal here with the same humble attitude we've seen throughout this chapter. And the chapter ends with some truth-telling that we probably sometimes wish would not, was not there. We want to sanitize the Bible. This is not pretty. Here's sin again. Here's stuff that we can't explain again. Why is it in here? 
but we see that the Bible reports things as they really are. It is not sanitized. Praise his name for that. Out of the blue, it seems, we read that Saul had early on given Michael, his daughter, and David's first wife, remember that earlier, to Palti, somebody else, while Saul was chasing him around the wilderness trying to kill him. This was a very cruel offense. And you see it written all the time. To David, what about Abigail? What about Michael? Michael, Saul's own daughter, he does this too. This guy was mean and crazy and evil. But now we also find that David took two wives. Ahinoam and Abigail. Yeah, you should be shaking your head. Even though it was not uncommon for a man of David's public stature to embrace polygamy at this point, it was and still is, it was and still is a failure to uphold God's design for marriage and would in the end lead to great harm to both David and his household. There's no commentary to this effect, but anybody that can read, as you read the story of David's life, you see the craziest things happen in his family. And it's a result of the polygamous nature. This is a microscopic chart of his wives and their children. And there are many. And there are so, you can't say dysfunctional. This family was beyond dysfunctional. Right? You guys know, many of you, the story of his family. There is great harm to both David and his household because of his polygamous taking of wives and concubines. We can't go into all those details now, um, but, for example, we learn later in 2 Samuel that Ahinoam's son, she had one son, see if you recognize his name, Amnon. Some of you are going, oh, yeah, because Amnon raped his half-sister, Tamar, and was then murdered by Tamar's brother, Absalom. Everybody's heard of Absalom. That was just one incident as a result of a polygamous household. David went on then, as I said, to add many more wives and concubines in utter denial of what God said in Deuteronomy 17. There is no commentary in the narrative to the immoral nature of this lifestyle. There's not some extra verses that go, and you see that this is wrong and blah, blah, blah. But you can't miss what the details of his life clearly indicate its sinful and dysfunctional nature. And we find out later that Abigail had one son and is only mentioned once in the whole Bible. His name was Chiliab or sometimes called Daniel. Considering all the other tragedies with David's children, maybe just knowing his name is a good indication. You know the child that Never got into anything where you had to write a whole chapter trying to explain it. 
We don't know. Again, the text reports things as they are, and the way things are, this is a great way to close today, and I hope you get this and aren't sitting there stewing over polygamy and all the other stuff. Listen. The way things are makes us do something. It makes us look to Christ alone. Because can you see how the fact that the kingdom was not even safe in the hands of the Lord's godly servants prepares us for the way that he brought Jesus in to be the king through David's line, through Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. Okay, you, you get the point? We could just go like this on this chart, and it's just crazy. It makes us see the need for, for Christ to be sent, for God to send his own son to be the king. Because it shows man's general sinful nature, even among his people that keep going off in all these different directions. In other words, let's sum it up this way. There was no other human good enough to pay the price for sin. Only Jesus, God's own son, could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Yeah, David had a heart after God's heart. He repented quick when Abigail confronted him. And he will later, too. But he was still a sinner. But he was a redeemed sinner. And he looked to that one that would come and pay for his own sin. But it makes us look to the King of Kings, who is coming back. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what, what a story. Thank you for these stories that illustrate the doctrinal truths that, that we hold, that remind us that we are men and women who have sinful hearts, and if we know you, then our hearts have been redeemed only because of Jesus Christ. And we are so grateful, and we, yet we confess our constant ungratefulness as we want to take things into our own hands and exact our own vengeance upon people that we love and people that we hate and people that are brothers and sisters in Christ and we confess that that is just so not like you it's it's opposite of what you call us to be and do and as we learn these truths as we walk in this life we pray that that you would work in us such that only the grace that you give us in Christ as we see that clear and clear would enable us and empower us to be able to live lives of grace and showing mercy. Oh God, we, we ask that in your son's name. Jesus, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Again, let's say the grace together, that's 2 Corinthians 13, 14. There's only three parts to it, but if we don't do it a whole lot, we tend to forget. Here we go. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.
Have a great fourth.